HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Culture and Flavor is a podcast about food and culture centered in Black and Indigenous foodways. Hosted by myself, Zella Palmer, right here in New Orleans, Louisiana. Each episode features high vibrational conversations with cultural bearers, chefs, farmers, scholars, barbecue pitmasters, and more. Where there is flavor, there is history. Join me on Culture and Flavor and all of my guests as we share stories that will have you praise dancing, cooking, conjuring, and inspiring your culinary journey. Welcome to another beautiful episode of Culture and Flavor with Zella Palmer. Today, y'all, I am so excited to have my friends Angie and June Provost on this episode. They are legends, the goats in Black farming and in sugarcane, and I'm just so excited to have this conversation with them. They are farmer activists that reside in New Iberia, Louisiana. They're creators of the Provost Initiative, a venture that encompasses a for-profit farm named Provost Farm, and a nonprofit organization called the Provost Faith Heritage Center and Community Gardens. You might remember them as um, that were fe- they were featured in the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah Jones when they received a national spotlight on their plight as Black farmers in um, in sugarcane in Louisiana. I just am so excited to have this conversation, and I'm I hope you really enjoy and pull up a seat and really enjoy this conversation that we're about to have. So, welcome to Angie and June to uh, Culture and Flavor. Hello. Hi, Zella. Hi, everyone. Thank y'all for having us yeah, here so today. So good to be here. So good to be. I, I, I'm so happy to hear you guys' voice because I haven't seen you all in a minute. So I'm, I'm glad to catch up and, you know, just really get into this conversation because I truly admire you all uh, and the work that you all have done over the years. And just um, you all are such a light for so many um, in the in the farming community. So thank you. Thank you, thank Zella. You. And thank, thank you, you for bringing your light. Um, to such an important issue. Uh, so many things surround our food ways, the way we grow food, 
Um, so we're just thankful to have you there as a voice as well. Yeah, that, that means a lot coming from you. So, yes. Oh, thank you. Um, so I just wanted, you know, for our listeners who are new to you guys story, if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, your brief history and what happened to your sugarcane farm that um, really, you know, put you all on a national light, on a national right. stage. Mm-hmm. So uh, June and I love to call ourselves multi-generational farm owners. Uh, let's acknowledge our ancestors who have been farming and cultivating the land for a millennia since the dawn of humankind. Um, so, but just in logistics, uh, June's family were a 5,000 acre farm operation. It was part of a sharecropping venture plus an ownership venture where they owned their own land. Um, and beginning around 2006, between 2008, there was a lot of turmoil, a lot of reprisal and, uh, a lot of insidious systemic issues that the family faced and June took the brunt of it, uh, meaning that he was required to inherit a lot of generational debt. Um, and also a lot of generational um, issues that we face as Black people, as Black farmers. So, um, you know, in farming that 5,000 acres, he was one of the largest, I could call you one of the largest farm operators in the state of Louisiana, individual operators. And, you know, with our history in the United States, although farming is thought of as this wholesome industry, uh, for Black farmers, we're faced with a lot of setbacks in terms of trying to cultivate the land and make a living out of that. And that's exactly what happened to June. And, and why it was so important for us to, to speak out, you know, we were in a community of nothing but Black sugarcane farmers. I mean, to be exact, the late 90s, early 2000s, there were over 60 African-American farming families in this community, over 60. And, and that's some farms that had three and four, you know, kids that were, you know, ready to take over the farm. And now we're down to four. That's, mm. that's frightening. I mean, you, you talk about generational wealth. You know how much generational wealth was lost from this? Mm -hmm. Many of the I'd like to add that many of the families here that were farming came out of slavery, of enslavement, farming land. Right. So some of us had the privilege of farming prior to emancipation. Some of us began farming land during Reconstruction. So you talking about multi-generational farm ownership within the black community here in Acadiana. Um but that comes whenever you see, I mean, you can look at this historically, whenever you see Black folks making a way for themselves, you will see reprisal throughout history. And that's exactly what has transpired within these families here in South Louisiana, right, that are Black sugarcane farmers. It's not because these folks didn't want to get up and do their job or that they didn't have the passion for it. This is in our DNA. This is what we do. This is what we're proud of doing. So there always is an explanation of systemic issues that causes this loss in communities such as ours. 
and, and you know, they always say that that farmers never retire, you know, and, and it's true. You, you see these white farmers here in their trucks riding and they're 90, 95 years old. But as black farmers, the stress overtake us so bad. I mean, we're lucky if we see 70 years old, you know, white farmers, you know, farming is it, it can be difficult. You know, you have to worry about the weather, you know, if you're going to catch hurricane, drought, those normal things. But as black farmers, we have to worry about are we going to get a crop loan? If we do get a crop loan, when is that crop loan going to be there? Because in farming, you need your, your funds at a certain time. And as black farmers, we were always two or three months behind and you can't make that up. So it's, it's, it's the added stress that's on us at all times. Exactly. And that added stress is creating or has created a system of abuse upon us that's emasculated the black male, that's put extra burdens on black females. All of these things are happening and are, you know, have happened and are still happening. And one of the things that we see like transpiring through feudalism, through uh, discrimination, all of these old tactics that were brought over here, um, we see these effects happening across the nation in a a cross-sector way. So meaning that although white farmers may have to only worry about like the weather or some sort of mishap on the farm. But because of this system of abuse that we've built, we're all worrying about climate change right now. We're all worrying about healthcare. We're all worrying about those things that a systemic society has built. So our mission and drive is to be able to discuss why diversity and inclusion of thought And action is so important because it's not just about the farming aspect, the owning of a business, but it's the ability to own a business, to provide your voice, to provide insight and solutions to problems that affect us directly, but indirectly affect our white brothers and sisters, our native brothers and sisters, All of these things affect us all. And so that's why we're here. We're here to spread the message that diversity and inclusion is what's needed to correct all these wrongs. I remember watching. Thank you for sharing that. And, and, um, you know, I think um, a couple of, uh, you know, things happened while you all were um, in the, you know, throes of, um, you know, fighting for, your land to uh, come back to you as well as, you know, just trying to um, be in community and be a voice for the voiceless. Queen Sugar came out, the 1619 Project came out that really, I think, helped shed a a lot of light on Black farmers um, that I hadn't seen since, you know, really, you know, in a long time, except for Pickford versus Glickman Supreme Court decision. And I just, I'm curious, you know, I would love for you all to tell your, just some of the tactics that were used on you all as far as, um, you know, how it affects voting, how it um, affects, you know, just, um, you know, having to go to uh, the government to get crops and loans and, you know, even just being able to be in those spaces where decisions are made over land. 
Right. So I think what it is, is that it's honestly about resources. If we don't have the resources to have a prosperous life, then we're not going to participate in voting. We're not going to be able to participate in building wealth for our communities and infrastructure and all of those things that happen. Right. So it starts off with, let me limit these folks ability to farm their land. I'm going to cut off their resources from the beginning. And then I'm going to put them in further debt, in debt servitude or debt peonage, so that even if they try to make some money, they'll be so busy and worried about paying our debt that that are their debt that has been accumulated, whether through ill-gotten gains or what have you by the USDA, that it makes it difficult for us to move forward um, in any aspect or sector of life. Um, so it's about cutting those resources. And once you've cut those resources, and like I said, if we make made a little bit of headway, well, then here comes the reprisal. Here comes the retaliation. So when we were, for example, we went to Southern University and LSU Ag for assistance in 2013, uh, early 2014, to say, hey, guys, we need help here. Folks got wind of that, right? And that's when the, the 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 real issues really began with reprisal, meaning that we had dead cats put in equipment. We had equipment, the, the vandalizing of the tractors escalated. Uh, I remember one time working in the flower bed in my mother-in-law's front yard, and there was this guy in this fancy F-250 truck uh, with his slick back hair, just looking at me and watching me work in the front yard. And when I went to approach him or film him, he drove off. I actually posted it on Twitter when it happened because we were really scared. I mean, we were filing numerous police reports, but there were no solutions or um, no form of correction provided to us by the very institutions that are there that are meant to protect us. So those are sort of the things that happen. So it's cutting your resources. It's making you scared, right, for your life and for the lives of your family members. Um, and so those things can bring about disenfranchisement. It can make you apathetic. It can make you depressed mentally, physically, all of those things. Those are things that have transpired through um, chattel slavery, through discrimination, Jim Crow laws to now. And, and I can't express enough how it, how it affect us. You know, when, when we're going in the field early that morning and you see three dead cats lined up in a tractor, I mean, that's not anybody just trying to play games. That, that was a sign. I mean, that was really a sign for us. Like, you know, it's, it's, people want to hurt us. Right. It's not just like they're spray painting one of the tractors. I mean, they were taking injector pumps off, things that, you know, you have to know what you're doing to do those things to the equipment. But it was whatever it took to to delay our farm, make it make it cost more money for us to farm. It's, right. They wanted us out by any means necessary. And I, and I also have to say this. So as historically in our community as black people, we've had this idea of farming again that has come from slavery and Jim Crow chain gangs and debt peonage, right? So that means that 
We've always been told that we form other people's land and not our own, that we make money. We're like a source of passive income for the planter class. So what that always told us is we were experiencing these things. It wasn't because we didn't know what they were doing. So when folks at the USDA or the bank or wherever would tell us, you just don't know how to farm, we never believed them right? We never really took that in as something that is really uh, uh, something that we should internalize and take advice from, right? What we understood was, is that it was a means of control. And all of these things that were happening to us, we understood it was because they wanted what we had, right? They wanted the ability to take over our lands, to take over our farms, to take over our lifestyles. So we understood the value of what what it was we were doing and what it was we were trying to create. And, and you know, as we understood it, it, it didn't make it any better for us to see, you know, here I am, a four-generation farmer. That's all I ever did do. This is my life. It's my passion. It's, it's everything to me. And they want me out, but then you have a young white roar with no experience whatsoever, you know, coming and taking your land. And all of a sudden in two, three years, you know, they're three, four thousand acres. It's a hurtful thing, though, to see that regardless if we know what's going on, it's still hurtful. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when the 1619 project came out, it caused so much controversy that, um, you know, to even discuss uh, the legacies of slavery and a slew of laws, a ban on books, a national fear of discussing American history came about. And but in that was you all's story. And sugar, you know, which isn't always featured when we talk about farming, it's soy, it's you know, corn, etc. I would love for you all to talk about the deep history of sugar in Louisiana. Right. So and it, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Zella. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So um, the history of sugar, I mean, sugar is what built Louisiana's economy and it still does. Of course, we're a heavy oil industry state, but we're really, truly based on agriculture and agritourism. And so sugar is the driving force of our economy. You cannot go anywhere from New Orleans to, I would say, maybe Alexandria to Lafayette, onward even to Lake Charles, where you're not going to be touched by something that sugar hasn't created or that the USDA is not involved in. And so um, just thinking about that, I often think about, too, what is owed to our families and our communities based on the fact that it was their bodies that were used and their minds that were used to build this industry. And so talking about, you know, how many enslaved people were working on a plantation, a plantation that we probably were descendants of, like I can actually, uh, I sit 20 miles from the very plantation, sugar plantation that my great, great grandfather was enslaved on, right? And so, I mean, just thinking about uh, the powerful driving force that is sugar in the state of Louisiana, but that also transpires to nationally and globally. Those things are so important. And and for me, it's just, you know, when you're a four generation, 
you know, on, on both sides, my mom's side and my dad's side. And when they were, when we were doing the 1619, we actually went in a field where my grandfather planted sugarcane X amount of years ago. And, and I, I, you feel something when you walk that ground that your grandfather walked. You, you feel something in you. It's hard to explain. And I always tell people, you know, being in a tractor, chopping the dirt, you, you get a smell. I, I, I'll say that every time because it it's true. But, but being in, in a certain plot of land that your grandfather and your dad worked, I mean, it's, it's undescribable because, I mean, for me, I idolized my dad. My dad was my, my hero. And to do what my dad was doing is, is something I wanted to do. And my dad always wanted to pass it over to his kids and grandkids. And, and, and it hurt so bad because they were robbing us from that. And one of the things I'd like to add that sugarcane farming is so much in our DNA. One of the things June forgets to tell people is that his ancestors are part of the Olivier chain, right? So they are uh, they are descendants of Charles de Vanzant Olivier and an enslaved woman who came here and formed that very plot that very plot where we were standing and recording the podcast for 1619. So that's some powerful stuff, right? So when we live here in New Iberia, we're here working in the field, but when we go visit you all in New Orleans, we understand that New Orleans was the playground for the people who were enslaving folks here in New Iberia. There are so many stories and, and it's it's like this never ending web of, um, of history that we deal with here in terms of sugarcane, the industry and sugarcane, how it deals with us as families. And, and, and just to add to, it's just like, you know, sugarcane is like a hundred day harvest. You know, you start in October and usually end in January. But I just remember the times of all the black farmers in our community and the communities next to us. Mardi Gras was a time that all the, the farmers got together, either went to a certain farmer shop or we all got together to do a Mardi Gras celebration. And, and all of that is, is gone now. All of those different things are gone. I mean, and that's we're trying to bring it back. But. It's just so many families have been robbed. I can't say that enough. It's difficult to bring things back when you see how your neighborhood school has been shut down and moved further down the neighborhood where the kids can't walk to or get to easily. When the park has shut down, when the community store has shut down, when the exit to your neighborhood has been closed. Those things make it difficult to move forward, but we are all doing it. We're doing it the best way we can. Ooh, powerful conversation. And on that note, uh, we're going to have a word from our listeners. Thank you for listening to Culture and Flavor. Please make sure you hit that subscribe button. And when we come back, we'll talk with the provost about their new nonprofit. And we'll talk about the Inflation Reduction Act and their beautiful marriage. We'll be right back with a brief messages. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. 
HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, we're back. So, uh, June and Angie, I would love for you all to talk about your uh, new nonprofit. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm excited for it. Yeah. So um, it's it's an amazing venture and we want to thank you for taking part of it. Um, <laughs> it's called the Provost Farm Heritage Center and Community Garden. The idea came about when we were renovating an old farm shop on our property. The farm shop renovation came before the nonprofit idea. The farm shop ca- renovation came out of the fact that We were just cleaning up around there and like our elders would come by and say, man, this is starting to look nice. This reminds us of when we were young. We had no place to go to. So the farm shop was like the community center on the weekends or holidays. Right. That was due to segregation. So our aunts and uncles and grandparents all gathered for a crawfish ball or a barbecue at the farm shop when the weather was cool. Because uh, it's very hot right now. <laughs> so that was that was one of the things that was like that is a a a well known thing in South Louisiana is that either we're at somebody's house playing cards or dominoes, or we're at the farm shop balling crawfish or barbecuing. So that was the idea of that, and we were like, man, this would be awesome if we were able to bring some programming here because folks are always asking, can we come visit y'all? Can we come take a look at the farm? And we were like, that would be awesome. But is there something more that we can do that not only impacts us, but impacts folks around us? And uh, people can use it as an example or partner with us uh, so that we can affect things nationally, especially for BIPOC farmers. Um, And so that's really where it is. And so we're looking to do programming that involves culinary students especially young black culinary students studying uh, food ways so that they can come source from local farmers here and from our garden to sort of chef it up. And because, you know, Louisiana is the best place for food. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, uh, and also do field days, farm tours, uh, get with young students so that they can we can take them around to see different farms in the area and just do like simple community development projects. We live in a very flood prone area. And I think, I believe the average age of the person living here in New Iberia is about 37 years old. So we're a fairly young community, but we also have a senior community here, right? And so just making sure that folks are able to live their best lives uh, to get out of the floodplains, get some homes um, elevated so that we're not pushed out and big mansion beach homes come this way. 
uh, and that we can just prosper as a community and, and move forward um, in a way that brings that brings healing to all of us. And and for me, I think uh, that is like the most exciting venture we we've took on. I mean, it's like every day is like I am there either cleaning up or rearranging because the, the shop was dilapidated from hurricanes. And it, I mean, it was a complete turnaround from, you know, where it was to where it is now. And we're hoping for a ribbon cutting sugarcane festival weekend, which is pretty much the last weekend in September. And why we think that's full circle, because in 2018, our home was foreclosed on Sugarcane Festival weekend, the weekend that you should be celebrating, celebrating. you know, because you just about finished planting sugarcane right. and you're about to start harvesting. But in 2018, the nightmares when the sheriff came knocking on the door and said, you have 24 hours to get all of your belongings out the house. But mm -hmm. Sugarcane Festival weekend allowed us to have three days. Because the courts were closed. So mm -hmm. we just find it would be full circle to have a ribbon cutting Sugarcane Festival weekend this year, and and we're so excited. We're we're even we're even talking about bringing some black farmers from across the country, especially Tim Pickford, who we become like great great friends. We're family, and we're trying to get him down to celebrate that weekend with us as well. So right, and let I can't every, wait. and let everyone know how important they are to us, and just show appreciation for folks like you all who have have supported us. And, and been like family to us um, along the way. So I can't wait. Um, you know, I'm still waiting on my Kubion. I'm still waiting to go to the trail ride with y'all. So oh, I'm yeah. excited. <laughs> Let me tell you, before we got on this podcast, tell them what we were listening to. Yeah, you was listening Listen to some to Chris, Chris Audwin. Yes. Getting ready. Getting ready. <laughs> Girl, I, look, I got my, my glitter pants. I have yes. my, my cowboy boots. Let's go. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> no, but I saw that you all went to D.C. recently, um, you know, I, and I'm, I want you all to talk a little bit about why you went to D.C. and a little bit about how the Inflation Reduction Act is impacting Black farmers. Right. So the, our first trip to D.C., uh, it was for a Descendants event at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Uh, and we also met with Senator Booker's office to discuss with him ways that the Inflation Reduction Act could help us because we still, although we've been through two uh, litigations, um, there is still this open-ended issue with the USDA and USDA debt. Um, and so we went to D.C. to speak with uh, Zach Doshino, who's the head of FSA, at the USDA and Senator Booker's office had a really great meeting with them. But there's still these like past issues that have to be rectified that are affecting us currently. And so um, like most black farmers, we are still waiting, right? So we've been able to get some debt paid from the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, we are waiting on 22007, which is about the discrimination payments. Um, 
that are that you as a black farmer or someone as a black farmer can apply for to get financial assistance if you can prove that you've experienced discrimination. But let me be clear, this is financial assistance. This is not compensation for discrimination because compensation for discrimination opens up the door and sets precedent for reparations. Mm. I'm going to mm-hmm. say that again. This is financial assistance. This is not fully what we need. We need reparations. In order for this to be something that really gives us the value of our work and what we've lost mentally, physically, financially, all of those things, we need compensation. So we will continue to activate ourselves and try to get others activated around the fact that Black farmers, Black people need reparations in this country in order to really be able to move forward with our lives. Because there's always going to be this tug and pull with us as Black farmers if we're not properly compensated. Hmm. What would reparations look like for you all? I I was talking to uh, Dr. Julianne Malvo, who is a distant relative of mine. I was talking to her about that the other day because at the uh, panel discussion we were on together in D.C. And she's a pretty well-known economist and dean at SoCal. And uh, she asked me the same question. And I said, well, when I say support black farmers, I mean pay black farmers. So that means Reparations equals payment, right? But one of the things that I know very well as Black people, if we are paid, unless there are repairs to systemic laws, that money can be stolen right back from us. So pay us, give us the laws that protect that money, and then lastly, show us how to multiply those dollars and create real wealth for our communities. And so that's what reparations looks like to me. It's like a holistic approach that involves a big check, <laughs> mm, <laughs> protecting mm. that check. And, and you know, mm-hmm. me and me and Mr. Pickford always talk about that. And it's just like, you know, at his age, he said, "June, I still want to farm." You know, he he loves it that much. And and we talk about that often. He said, "Look, I just want enough money to get me a farm so I can get back and play in the dirt." You know, and as black farmers, that's that's what we want. We want to continue farming, get the next generation of farmers going. Right. And, you know, a lot of folks who oppose reparations always come up with the idea. But at what cost? That costs too much. It's too divisive. What 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 cost is that? But I always ask, well, if we don't do it, then what happens if reparations are not provided? Tell me what happens to us as black people. What happens to our laws? We can see right now what's happening with the laws in this country, what is happening with our climate, what's happening with all of these things that will eventually affect us all, no matter what color we check off on that ethnicity box, right? And so it's about making sure that when we are paid, we are protected. And that means that just like through um, the freedom of enslaved people 
or the integration of schools. All of these things were fought for by Black folks. We've opened the door for equality and equity for so many people. And so now it's time for us to start recouping. And when we recoup, again, we make it better for everyone. Ooh, y'all are speaking, y'all are preaching today. Y'all are preaching. Come on down. Let's go. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I just, I really, um, you know, just want to say that I am so proud of you all. Um, you know, you all are a voice to a, vo- a voice for so many who, you know, just for centuries, you know, um, have had, um, you know, a very challenging, um, you know, path in uh, farming, you know. Um, and I think when I, you know, when I think about even, I remember um, June that you did a, you know, you were um, cultivating some sugarcane and you were able to um, do a partnership with um, a soda uh, pop company. And I remember tasting, I don't remember the name of it offhand, but I just remember tasting that soda pop and drinking it. And I was just like, whoa, you know, yeah. Just a difference, right. you know, and yeah. Boomy, it's Boomy Cane Water. So they're actually, um, they are, I I would say they are more of like a fresh juicing company. And one of the things that they were based off of is that, you know, sugar cane juice in some parts of the world is used as a medicinal purpose. It's sort of like an electrolyte drink like Gatorade would be or Pedialyte would be, but it's more natural. So that's what they were doing. Um, and so, yeah, and you, I think you can still find some of their drinks in, around Whole Foods and some other areas. But yeah, it's really good. I know they recently came out with a, a strawberry lemonade uh, boomy drink too, I think. And, and, you know, with all our turmoil, I mean, we, we did get to experience a lot of things, you know, when the story was going out. I mean, that's one of them. Actually, we were able to go to Ghana and consult mm. for a sugarcane operation, organic sugarcane operation, which was life changing for us. I mean, we mm-hmm. spent two weeks over there and and we also increased their production 37 percent that first year. So, you know, it was it was just an, an amazing experience. Yeah. Let me ask you all, what can people do to support you all, you know, aside from um, the nonprofit that you all are launching, you know, and I, and when it comes out, I'm sure many of our listeners, many of you all supporters will show up in full force, you know, just to make sure that we support all of the hard work and the celebration, you know, because this is a celebration of you all doing this. Um, what can we do to support you all to support Black farmers in our local communities? So I would definitely say, um, just provide the best resources you can. I will always say that resources, resources, resources. Whatever your expertise is, whomever you know with a special expertise, whether it be legal, whether it be business structuring, whether it be some sort of technical support, those things are needed in our communities. Another thing is simple friendship and fellowship. Invite us to your home, come to our homes. Uh, Talk to us on the phone. Be a part of our lives. That's the best way that you can help us. Pray for us. We pray for you. Those types of things are what we need. See us as fully fledged human beings. And so, um, you know, and meet us where we are because a lot of black farmers are coming with some trauma 
They're coming with um, some very, I like to call it, uh, they've been affected a great deal by the Willie Lynch syndrome, to be honest. And so I think a lot of folks really need to be met where they are with a lot of grace and dignity. And so, uh, yeah. And, and, and I guess, too, if, if, you, if there is a small farmer, try to buy from that farmer, support them. And, and I guess for, for me especially, it's just to have a conversation with us. You know, just that, that can go a long way. I mean, when we was at our worst point, I felt I didn't have anybody to, to, to talk to besides, you know, my wife who supported me a thousand percent. It's just sometimes you need that little extra conversation, just a little support and said, you know, we have your back. Just just anything, anything will go a long, long way. And I can say some of the things that we don't need. I can tell you right now, black farmers don't need another lending scheme practice. We don't need predatory lenders approaching our door. We don't need unethical behaving attorneys trying to say that they're going to get us uh, so much X amount of dollars from the USDA when they have no idea what they are doing. We need people with the proper resources, with the best intent to help us achieve um, a more equitable lifestyle for ourselves. Thank you all for sharing that. Um, June, you have such a love for the land. Um, I've always been impressed by that. And sometimes listening to your stories about growing up with your dad and you know all of your family on the land. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a story from your childhood of just when you fell in love with sugarcane, when you fell in love with uh, farming? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, like I say, I always idolize my dad. So it could be hot like this. My dad would be in a truck with his air condition on, but the windows were down and he had that one arm out the window. I still do that today. I mean, just whatever it was. I, I, my dad would do, I would copy it. But I, but I remember just, and I think that's why I love planting cane so much now. And if you ask any sugarcane farmer, they say planting cane is the worst time of the year because it's, you know, you have so many different things going on at one time. But for me, it was always my favorite because I remember walking with my dad before I even got on the tractor, walking with my dad, crossing the roads. And when you see what you planted two weeks ago finally start popping out of the ground. And my dad would always get on one knee and, and, and just count the cane and just see how wide of a stand it is, how good it's coming out. And I remember that. I don't know how old I was, but I remember that. And I still get down on my knee right now and, and, and check cane out. It's just, I mean, when I say my dad was my hero, I mean, he was my hero. I mean, just, I mean, he taught me everything. I know he taught me my work ethics. I mean, everything is just, I think that's what yeah. I remember the most is just him taking me riding after school and we go and look at planking, king that we just planted and just crossing the roads and him explaining to me why we need to drain here to drain the water. Just, just those simple things that you take for granted, but it was just preparing me, you know, for doing what I'm doing now. And you all are still young farmers. So I'm curious what you all have to say to the next generation of farmers, because there is a rise of um, young farmers, but you know, some of them start um, and then stop, you know, just because they realize like, you know, this is, this is um, 
you know, this is really a, a, a battle. You know, you got to love this. Right. Um, I think one of the things is, is that you have to have a, a, a great business plan. And at the time that we are, when there are so many inequities, you have to be very creative. Um, so to farm, you have to love to be able to produce and create because that's what farming is. Um, but think of innovative ways to operate and uh, move your farm. There's been a rise of urban farming for, for Black farmers, but there's a decline in row crop farming. And so and that's a real issue because we know row crop farming is where a lot of our generational wealth is held. And that's where a lot of land is held. So um, I think folks need to be, whether you're rural or urban, need to be very creative uh, and be able to not surround yourself with folks who like to hoard information, but folks who like to share information uh, to make your production or whatever it is more valuable and more profitable to you. And when I say profit, I don't just mean the dollars that come in. I mean the prosperity in terms of like your family's health, uh, your neighborhood's health, all of those things I think are, for me, when I talk about wealth and prosperity, that's what I'm thinking about. And, and you know, in 1920, there was 920,000 African-American farmers. Now we're less than 35,000. I mean, we need that young generation up and coming because, I mean, the rate we're going right now, that number is we, we're going to lose thousands every year. And and for, for us, we, we want the young kids to get inside of a tractor and look inside that tractor is the best office in the world. I mean, some of the tractors now have like three computer screens. It's, it's air conditioned, radio. It's, we always tell people it's nothing better than waking up a Sunday morning, jamming to some zodiacal music and, and tilling the soul. It's we, the best. We want young kids to experience that because it's, it's something tremendous about it. It's just, and we need that, that next group of young African-American farmers coming. I mean, we, we definitely need it. Right. It's the, it's the, I think in order to encourage the next generation, we also need to be able to communicate what agriculture and farming is effectively. If we repeatedly talk about agriculture or think of it as you've got to always have a hoe in your hand, you can't mechanize, you can only grow a small plot of land. I think that's doing us a disservice. I think a farming operation is whatever you make it as long as you can be successful. One of the things that in communicating the aspects of agriculture and black farming, I always like to tell younger folks, it was black farmers who mechanized the industry in itself. You think about Norbert Ryu, Julian Leonard, uh, George Washington Carver, we can go Fannie Lou Hamer, we can go on and on and on with all of these names of folks who worked in a rural farming industry and made it better for this nation. And so another thing I like to say is that Bill Gates is the largest farm landowner in the United States. So if farming is good enough for Bill Gates, then it is certainly good enough for my young brothers and sisters, for who they are descendants most likely of agricultural producers. And so it's very important that I think we effectively communicate what agriculture is. Mm, um, 
you all have such a beautiful marriage. Um, I just, every time I'm around you all, I just feel all gooey and uh, ooey gooey cake. (laughs) Um, How does that keep, how does your, you know, is there, what do you practice some type of self-care? Because I say this because there's so many farmers, um, you know, on a national level that have committed suicide, broken marriages, you know, broken families, but yet you all, you know, have, have, you know, are so united when you all speak, you know, when you all are together, you don't leave each other's side and you can see the love between the both of you all. What keeps you grounded and what advice do you have for any married couples, you know, who are also farmers? Before you, you talk, like when you, you said a lot right there, uh, Zella, you know. I always do. But, but, you know, the, the stress is real. And, you know, and I, I tell people, you know, I contemplated suicide because we not only lost our, our farm, we, we lost our home, we lost families, land. We lost a lot. Some family relationships. Family relationships. I mean, I literally contemplated suicide. I mean, we, we, we went through a spell for two weeks. We couldn't buy a loaf of bread. I mean, in, in, and I know Angie looks at me crazy when I say that, but she could have actually, because it took a lot for her to stay right there. I mean, it's it, it it's a lot. I mean, literally couldn't buy a loaf of bread, you know, but she was there for me from the start to finish. And, and our love, if anything, grew stronger. I mean, I, I love her with all my heart because, you know, she she stood by me, my family. I mean, it's because of her I'm still sitting here and able to talk today. I have to say one of the things that keeps us going is that we support each other. Uh, We have a lot in common. June and I both met each other later on in life. I was 28. You were 30 or was it 30 and 32? I don't remember. 30 and 32. Okay. Like, yeah. So (laughs) we met later on in life. And so, um, you know, we already had these ideas of where we wanted our, our livelihoods to go. And we had commonality in coming from farm families. And uh, know, knowing like how steadfast we are in making sure that we honor our ancestors and our elders brought us together. Uh, and also just the genuine handsomeness of this man is, um, you know, it's hard to resist. What can I say? (laughs) So, so, I mean, like we just are each other's best friends. And I think that to make a relationship work, whomever you're with, whether you're married or not, if your partner is there and is your best friend, you will be successful because you need a best friend to get through life. If you're going to share um, yourself with another person that way, um, because we all know life is not perfect for anyone. But when you face major hurdles as we have, it's important to have your best friend. And that's exactly what I think June and I are to each other. Listen, I know my listeners are grabbing a box of tissues after you guys got And I have to give a shout out. I mean, June talked about his father, my father-in-law, who is now deceased, but we know he's looking at us and smiling and probably laughing at us half the time because we're so goofy. But um, I, my mother-in-law, my mom, my dad, my grandparents, uh, you know, 
those folks have shown really great examples of what uh, married life is. And so we just try to emulate that. And even when they, whenever they would see us falling off the, the trail of like married life, they would be like, uh-uh, get back on it. Y'all stick this out. Y'all are made for each other. And so, you know, they were the best examples, I think, of, uh, of teaching us how to respect one another and have that mutual, um, like honor of one another mm-hmm. in our relationship. I think also, you know, Southern culture as well, um, you know, and possibly um, just you all, the you know, the region you're in, New Iberia, right. you know, Creole culture. Um, could you talk a little bit about, you know, Creole culture in Southwest Louisiana? Yeah. And tell us some of your favorite dishes. So uh, I would have to say my favorite dish is probably char-grilled oysters or crawfish pie. Um, Mm. I also like smothered chicken, but I like smothered chicken when it's cooked in a stew, like stew chicken. When they put the little bald eggs, that reminds me a little bit of the dishes we had in Ghana. Some of that jambalaya, that reminds me a lot of the jollof. I don't know. It's hard to pick a favorite, favorite dish because the food here is so good. Um, and that's what Creole culture is to me. Right. Um, it's it's this it's this like honoring, even if you don't even know it, you're honoring uh, your ancestors from this West African culture brought here to South Louisiana and so it transpires in the music, the food, the people, how we greet ourselves, uh, that Creole culture is so West African in all those many ways. And so, you know, it's just like, we love it. I mean, that's why we fight so hard for where we live because we are country folk living in South Louisiana and uh, we couldn't see ourselves living in any other place. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't say that enough. Not, and I think for me, my, one of my favorite is okra, which, which we are drawing right now too. And, and hopefully we're going to start donating because, because our freezers are getting a little full. So um, yeah, I, I think okra and, and like you say, this community, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, we're country folks too. So definitely. Right. Mm, and them Creole cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> With that handkerchief in that backpack. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank y'all for joining uh, Culture and Flavor. Uh, really appreciate the work that you all are doing. Uh, you know, we pray for you. Uh, we support you all, you know, and we thank you just for your light, you know, um, and I hope, you know, you all have a great summer that you all stay cool. And, you know, we're looking forward to seeing you all soon in New Orleans. And, you know, we thank our listeners for listening to another episode of Culture and Flavor with Zella Palmer. Thank you, June and Angie. Thank you, thank you Zella. Zella. Thank you so much. Culture and Flavor is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.